Mr. Brandon Moreau, how are we, sir? Yeah, well, Matt, there's lots happening. How are you? Uh, not too bad, not too bad. Um, you've, had, you've had a week off um, recharging the batteries. Um, I was in Quebec City um, picking up uh, people's views and what's happening out there in the marketplace. Exciting times. Look, uranium price moving 56, 57 um, bucks at the moment, accretive growth for sure. Um, what are, you, what are you making of the market conditions out there, first of all, before we get into this? Well, I think accretive is the right word, Matt. So the month-end prices have been pegged. So spots come in at $56.20. That's up about 3% on the month. So definitely accretive. You can't deny that. Uh, not the fireworks that I think many investors are looking for. But, you know, this is solid growth. And this is not the period of time when we were expecting fireworks either. So I feel like for the next few months, as the Northern Hemisphere goes into summer holidays and things are traditionally fairly quiet, any growth in the uranium spot price from here is a real bonus. And we expect to see the dynamic market conditions start to come into effect towards the end of this year. But, uh, you know, if you look at, for example, conversion, conversions now hit an all-time high above $40 and enrichment SWU prices, $136. So the rest of the fuel cycle is going gangbusters. And now we just need uranium to catch up. And, and that's typical because when there's pressure in the system of the nuclear fuel cycle, that pressure is initially going to be felt the most acutely, the closer that component of the fuel cycle is to going into a reactor. So enriched uranium products slash enrichment services are going to be under the most pressure because that's the last phase of the nuclear fuel cycle before it goes into a reactor. You've got conversion before that. And then there's something of a trickle down effect where we will see those extraordinary SWU and conversion prices start to be replicated in the U308 price. Well, look, um, we're going to this week in our new format, short, concise, talking about the stuff that's important, relevant, unbiased uh, reporting. We're going to bounce around the world. Um, we also about the geopolitics of it. We're, um, we're also looking at um, some of the effects of restocking that uh, is going on across the world and how that's going to help the sector. So. Um, why don't we start with sort of what's been happening and maybe start with what's been happening um, in Europe. What are you seeing over there? Well, I mean, just before we come online here, uh, I saw the great news that the Belgian government has finally agreed with Engie the terms on which they will restart the Tahungi 2 and Dol 4 nuclear reactors. So this is good because, you know, we had a bit to say about this on the show a few weeks ago because there was a in-principle non-binding agreement that was signed all the way back on 9th of January. And there was some press not long ago about, no doubt, Engie getting frustrated with the Belgian government because it needs to make a whole lot of plans. Now they can do that. So the fuel buyers there will be very relieved, no doubt, those reactors could start restart as early as November 2025. So when you think that the fuel cycle itself is 18 to 24 months, that's only just enough time for those fuel buyers to get busy now to restock those two reactors in particular so that they can um, continue to play the really important role that, that nuclear power has played for decades in Belgium. So well done. 
Belgium government. Well done, Engie, for staying in there and uh, managing to bring them to the table. And it's good news for Europe. Uh, it's um, yet another indication of how much the perception of this sector has turned in just the last two or three years. Yeah, it, it's essentially, actually, if you look, if you look at um, that announcement versus what happened with after the uh, Diablo extension announcement, I'm kind of wondering if perhaps the sector needs a better job of letting people know that the, the, these kind of uh, extensions, restarts are happening and you know, they will make a big difference and it will mean a lot more inventory um, re required. Um, so uh, Tehengi, and how do you pronounce the other one to, you mentioned? Tehengi and Dole. Goal, now, right, okay. How do you pronounce it? We'd need to get one of our Belgian friends on the show because I'm giving a very anglified version. So the only thing you can be absolutely sure of is that I'm sure I've mangled that pronunciation, but that's okay. how it reads. Matt. I just want to be able to look 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 at it uh, later. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll put a, we'll put a link uh, there for people to kind of read read these notes and perhaps they can start talking uh, about it and uh, sharing that. Uh, you know, with, with everyone else um, on various platforms. Um, also, and then before we kind of get into the geopolitics as well, I noticed you've been sort of beefing up the team. You've managed to nab Olga, haven't you? Am I yeah, that right? Um, uh, you know Olga Skolyakova. She is an absolute star, so I couldn't be happier with adding her to our Exco. So Olga, for the last six or seven years, I've worked really closely with her at World Nuclear Association. So um, people who followed the show would know that for four years or so, I was the co-chair of the demand working group within World Nuclear Association. What that group was responsible for was determining nuclear fuel and uranium demand forecasts all the way out to 2040 globally. But in addition to that, that broader working group also had to make forecasts about uranium supply, about conversion supply, enrichment supply, fabrication, how all of those things pulled together across three different scenarios. And uh, the superwoman who pulled all of that together, including garnishing the, garnering the input from 80 different executives in this industry across 20 different countries was Olga Skolyakova. And uh, so she's got an incredible depth of knowledge all the way across the fuel cycle. She's done everything from business development for Arriva, uh, which is now Arano, through to selling enrichment services in the US. And she's now joined the Exco. And really, that's the last major appointment that Bannerman needed to make to fill out what's now, you know, I'd love to see our team recognized for the world-class talent that's there. And that's important timing because the next steps for us are financing and contracting now that we've done all of the DFS and completed the engineering on our Itango Uranium project in Namibia. So I couldn't be more happy, Matt. And I know that you've had very um, positive experiences with Olga to do with World Nuclear Fuel Cycle Conference and various other things that she's had the responsibility for over the last six or seven years at World Nuclear Association. For, for sure, top-notch, well-connected, um, and I guess a statement of intent from you with regards to getting out there and marketing as you kind of reach these, um, the final nine yards, as it were. Um, okay, so, so that's, that's uh, I just wanted to point that out because I, th I think it's interesting when I'm sort of looking around the, the, the market, those who have done something similar to 
you there or and those that haven't those who will be able to have conversations meaningfully now and those who just are so far away from being able to actually talk about production and and any kind of marketing contracts um it, it's 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 interesting it's a kind of it's kind of sets the tone uh so, so congrats on that Look, let's let's get on to this kind of geop, uh, geopolitical um theme of ours which we like to do we're going to bounce around the world and we're going to see what's happening in various various uh, countries um so winner of the week we're going to stick with the old format. Winner of the week, who are you allocating that to? Well, I tell you what, it, everyone's talking about it, and it's Sweden for their gutsy decision to go public, basically saying that uh, they're going to achieve their clean energy goals on fact, not fiction, on demonstration, not hope, and on nuclear, not unrealistic expectations of intermittent renewables. So uh, the, they get the gong here. They, they've had the award this week for two reasons. One is it's an eminently logical and sensible approach. And there will be many a policymaker looking at this and the way that it's been received and saying to themselves, oh, wow, so you are allowed to think that clearly? I didn't realise that. Now, the other thing is Sweden again demonstrates the courage of an independent thought and without getting too political about this and talking too much about the pandemic, everyone will remember that they had the courage to take their own path when it came to lockdowns very early. And, you know, they were criticised enormously for it. But I think most people would look down, look back at that time and say, well, they didn't end up in any worse a situation than other European countries, but without some of the societal impacts of extensive lockdowns and so on. Now, when you add up the fact that their near neighbour, Finland, is also very progressive on this subject with the Finnish Green Party actively supporting nuclear power, we're really starting to see this shift being led by Scandinavia, being led by a group of countries that's in many respects, particularly socially, regarded as the most progressive in the world. This is great news for Sweden. It's great news for the nuclear industry because finally our technology and its impacts and its benefits are being judged fairly on a level playing field. And it's also being noticed very much by those who are concerned to see the gloss starting to come off intermittent renewables. Um, of course, intermittent renewables have got an important role to play. It just has to be the right role, not a grotesquely exaggerated role, which is what a lot of people are still fed in terms of this dream of being 100% renewable energy. It just simply is impossible and it's not going to happen. Good on Sweden for coming out and having the courage to say that and to provide, of course, the backing in terms of their superior carbon footprint it's 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 going to be interesting times obviously sweden's got a, f a few things um it needs to look at it needs to look at its dependency on uh fossil fuels out of uh russia it's obviously um, there was conversations about them joining nato um that that going on and i think as you say there's dawning realization from not just them but multiple um governments that these net zero targets that they're setting are utopian at best um, and, and they need to do something radical to um, to change that up. So um, interesting. I'll be interesting to see. Um, you know, um, if 
this announcement affects other countries' thought processes um, in the in the region. I think we in the UK could um, do with a kick up the backside too on, on that front. So uh, yeah, well done, Sweden. Well done yeah, there. And, and uh, just to pick up that thread, Matt, I think it will be influential because we only need to go back to 2015 when Sweden actually had an anti-nuclear political platform. And, you know, very sadly, they closed down two perfectly functional reactors. And we'll put some links there in the show notes. So they do have the capacity to be highly influential because other countries, particularly in Europe, such as Belgium, like we were just talking about, there is salvation, political salvation. You can change your mind. You can change your platform. And now yet another European country is doing exactly that. So I do believe it'll be influential. And countries like Germany and Austria are becoming increasingly isolated in Europe with their anti-nuclear stance. Hopefully cheaper too. Right. Um, we better move on to, it's always my favourite of the week, bungle of the week. Um, some, some people are starting to streak ahead somewhat. So but who are you allocating this to the, this week? Well, it's, it's another show favourite for the bungle. It's, uh, it's Germany. You know, I gave a nice little segue into this by mentioning Germany. And uh, th this is a bungle of disgraceful proportions. So the real bungle is that they got caught with their hand in the cookie jar, as we like to say. They got caught red-handed. There's a, a French uh, body, and I won't try and pronounce it in French, but basically they are called the School of Economic Warfare. It, it's a, it's a wow. real body. It's like a think tank, right? And they've done an investigative piece that has exposed the multi tens of millions of euros that the German government has been funneling into political organisations whose mandate is to meddle in the energy policies of France. So I'll let that sink in for a moment. You know, if you cast your mind back to the geopolitical rumblings that we've had, say, with Russian meddling in the US election and so on. Now, here's a country that's supposed to be an ally. It's part of the European bloc. And the government is funding these groups with the express uh, motivation and operating mandate to dismantle and weaken the French nuclear energy sector. Now, the investigative article that, uh, that accompanied this report, they go a bit further to say that the motivation for that is not only this crazy anti-nuclear platform that Germany's sort of religiously uh, promoted over the last couple of decades, but they claim that it goes further than that. And it's an attempt from Germany to weaken the competitive energy advantage that France has got by virtue of having not only cheap nuclear power, but also the fact that it's carbon free. So the cost of decarbonizing the electrical grid for France will be vastly, vastly cheaper than Germany. Uh, particularly since Germany chose to close down all of its reactor fleet. So it's really quite significant news, quite big news. You can imagine that um, this comes after the uh, proven revelations that a lot of the European anti-nuclear groups were funded by Russian interests. So we're now just starting to understand the depth of Russian strategic planning 
and the manipulation that's gone on to try and increase Europe's uh, dependence on Russian gas geopolitically and um, economically in the lead up to the war in Ukraine. And now, as if that's not enough, we're finding out that it's, it's not only dirty uh, clandestine money coming across from Russia, but it's even money coming straight out of the Bundestag in Germany. So uh, apart from it just being a disgraceful example of ideologically driven meddling in another country's economics, uh, it's also just so dumb of Germany to get caught doing it. So, you know, I wish there was a better word than bungle, but since this is a PG-rated show, Matt, we'll call it the bungle of the week. Well done, Germany, once again. I, well, I, I think Germany would take the word bungle because, you know, if, if we, because we start throwing words around like uh, espionage and uh, ideological meddling uh, with Germany, that's probably something that um, they're looking to distance themselves from or should be. Um, so uh, bungle of the week, it shall stay, but that's, that's, that's pretty grim stuff going on over there in Germany. Um, we better... So for anyone listening into this, I mean, take note, there's a link here to a, a document or to the actual Albert report where you can um, delve uh, into it a little bit further. But it gives you kind of sense of some of the stuff that goes on out there. And I, I, I certainly saw a lot of this in the oil and gas business when I was in it. Um, geopolitical, always uh, impacts lasting. Um, let's go to question of the week. Big one, this one. Big question, um, and if I if I look at uh, obviously recently uh, Encore's announcement this week about um, the lodgement of an ATM shelf prospectus, we've seen this mechanism work in North America so well. I better take the row that back. We've seen this mechanism used in North America uh, with varying degrees of success. Why don't ASX uranium copper companies offer? at the market facilities, ATMs? Uh, so it is an interesting question. So um, just for everyone who's not familiar with the concept, first of all, ATM, which stands for at the market facilities, means that in the North American context, a company can sell its new freshly issued shares into the stock exchange as if it was an existing shareholder selling them. So if an ATM facility is being utilized by the company, the buyer in on the other side of the transaction on the stock exchange, they can't distinguish between whether they're fresh shares being issued or whether they're secondary shares that's already been owned by somebody else. And for them, it doesn't really matter. Now, the spectacular example of where this has been used, of course, is this SPUT, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, and they've consistently issued new units whenever they've traded at a premium to their net asset value. The agent who handles the ATM facility basically takes the proceeds from the sale, deducts their tiny little fee, and then that money goes to the company as fresh subscription. And so Sput has then been using that to quickly go and buy uranium. And that created the whole flywheel effect that was uh, massively impactful on this sector until about the, six months ago. So that's how it works in North America. Now, the reason why you don't really see it very often on ASX is we don't have that same regulatory mechanism. So over here, there is a form of at the market facilities, 
it used to be called a controlled placement. I, I was a director of a company a few years ago that utilized one of these. So I've got some experience with it. But the way it needs to work on ASX is you need to actually issue the shares up front. So you might agree that it's going to be a 20 million share facility. You issue them up front to the agent who holds those shares without paying for them. And you've got an agreement that at the end of the facility time, you can buy them back for a dollar. Then if you instruct the agent to sell them into the market, they will do that. And only then do they need to pay for the shares and return them to the company. So it's a, it's a very different mechanism. It's not as attractive, and I'll tell you why. The reason is because, let's say it's 20 million shares, the day you start the facility, those shares are issued and therefore they're added to your capital structure. So there's a perceived dilutive effect immediately. That and the fact that ASX investors are not as accustomed to this way of raising capital, it does have a lot of advantages, particularly for a highly volatile stock or a stock that's, say, in an expiration phase that might need to respond very quickly to good news, catalysts, for example. But ASX investors aren't quite as accustomed to this, and so that does create a bit of an information drag for companies that do need to sell it. And, and just going back to my experience with the, the company that I was on the board of when they implemented one, they implemented this in conjunction with a large placement. So the golden rule seems to be on the ASX, only uh, only um, implement one of these facilities when it's clear that you don't need the money. Otherwise, investors become concerned that you're going to end up being a bit of a cap on share price growth and so forth. Right. Okay. I think, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued because I think you see a lot of commentary, uh, certainly from the uranium investors, about you know spurts at the market facility and sort of con constantly being, I guess, out, out of the money in, in that sense. Um, there's a frustration that they're not able to deploy three. I think was it three billion ATM? It's, it's a massive, massive number that they, they've um, announced. Uh, what you know, a year or so ago, Is that, was it about three? Yeah. So the total, the total capacity. Um, started at 300 million, then it was enlarged, and then it was enlarged again yeah. uh, to beyond 3 billion. Now, they issued roughly half of that, and they've still got more up their sleeve, usually a, a shelf prospectus which governs the total amount that you can issue under one of these ATM facilities in North America. You, usually a shelf prospectus is valid for 25 months. So, yeah. the, you know, they've still got a best part of a year left. Uh, to be able to issue further units under that facility. And then all they need to do is create a new shelf, facility, uh, shelf prospectus for a company that structure is as simple as we issue units, we buy uranium, we put it in a storage facility, rinse and repeat. Uh, you know, you don't get a much more simple business model than that. So their shelf prospectuses are fairly straightforward yeah and I, and I think i think just a thing for people who are not used to um sort of don't understand 18 so they've been around for a long time but um since the 80s i think um you the ad advantages being you know f flexibility minimal market effect lower costs and, and and i guess speed um in a good market uh when the market is kind of like it is now and i split is finding out you know some of the drawbacks are obviously market exposure um always maintenance costs because these i think they're also known as sort of um a, a dribble, dribble as a dribble out facility, <laughs> which I always lo love the fr love the framing of it. Um, obviously, um, ATMs typically, not in this case, typically are much smaller. 
um, and I guess um, availability would, would be another kind of drawback. So um, it's 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 uh, it's an interesting uh, and oft well I guess we're seeing a few more a few more companies use it, um, but um, yeah, go have a look. It's interesting. Um, right. Um, tweet of the week, which was something which we've come up with in the last, last couple of weeks, which um, I think seems very, very popular. And this, I think you're, you've chosen this week someone who we all respect and, and, and like. Um, and uh, who have you given it to? Well, the tweet of the week, and we'll show this now, is Grant Chalmers. Now, Grant puts out a phenomenal amount of data that he presents magnificently. So he's someone who just loves numbers. He's an Aussie, I'm pleased to say, and he's got a particular interest as an investor in energy markets. So whatever you do, go and follow Grant. His, his material is really fantastic, absolute top draw. So uh, what we've got here is we've got a money flow tweet. He did one for a broader range of commodities. He updates them regularly and we can look at what's happening with uranium. Now, if you look at money flows there in the green, it goes a long way to explaining why things are kind of gen uh, accretively increasing, as you say. Now, this is excluding ETFs, okay? So this excludes the money that's going into the various sector ETFs and SPUT. So it's really just underlying equities. It's an excellent forward indicator. It's well worth watching uh, because it's a forward indicator of money flows indicating share price growth or the reverse, of course. Um, now, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share a slide that shows how in Crux Club and Percent, you know, various participants have used this. So we're now going back. This is the great Brian Parks, who you can see he's put up one of Grant's tweets from a couple of years ago, three years ago. And he's basically pointing out, and if you look at the commentary there from the um, percent entry, you can see that he's pointed out that, you know, things are certainly on the up, lads. And to show you how much of a effective leading indicator to that is, about six months later, we saw what that green line, they're, they're slightly different charts, but we're looking at the same thing. You can see how things really did go nuts. We've even, you know, Grant even needed to use a different scale there. And that was the period of time with this later chart. That was just before the ATM, sports ATM, kicked in. So anyone who used that second money flow chart as a reason to invest in uranium at that moment would have done very well in a short period of time. And I can vividly remember the conversations that you and I were having, Matt, on the energy show about um, investing in uranium at that point was like taking candy off a baby. And it certainly proved to be the case for the following six months. So give Grant a follow. He's, uh, he's actually a great guy and he's an incredibly generous contributor sharing both his knowledge and his skills on Twitter and LinkedIn as well. Absolutely. Articulate and to, and to the point. Um, moonshot and fizzers, again, a very popular one here. I'm sticking with the geopolitical theme. Which country are you giving us to? Well, I think it goes to Spain. And oh, um, we don't know if it's a moonshot or a fizzer because uh, the news has come out that Spain's got a general election. We don't know yet the date. It's either going to be the end of this year or the beginning of next year. And Spain's a jurisdiction where 
the fortunes of nuclear power have over the last decade been very much tied to support from the right and uh, destruction from the left. Now, the opposition party is leading the polls in Spain, and they are the conservative side of politics. And um, we'd been wondering, you know, talking to my colleagues from Spain uh, in the nuclear sector, we'd been wondering if the nuclear industry would be brought up as an election issue. And it's just been revealed that, yes, the Conservative Party, who are leading the polls from opposition, are going to reverse the decisions or the policy to close down Spain's seven nuclear reactors and give them life extensions. Now, we still don't know if it's going to get up or not, and we still don't know what the incumbent government's policy is going to be, because um, a number of Spanish commentators that I've spoken to felt that if it wasn't going to be politicised for this election, they might have just got through the election and changed regardless, because as we've talked about a few minutes ago, even the left of politics is seeing that you cannot decarbonise without nuclear power and to close down seven very well-run uh, reactors with fantastic track records is crazy in this day and age. So the reason it uh, is very suitable as a moonshot or a fizzer, of course, if they don't get elected and the incumbent government maintains its closed-down policy, this is going to be a fizzer because it'll be a few years before it gets reviewed and that'll be too late um, possibly for four of the seven reactors, but definitely for two of them because they'll close down in that election cycle. However, if they do get up or if the incumbent government decides to support that and policy and neutralise it politically, uh, it's, it's certainly got the potential to be a moonshot. And if we cast our mind back a couple of weeks to the rather significant shot in the arm that nuclear fuel prices received when the uh, PG&E, the US utility, were refueling the Diablo Canyon reactors. So these, here's two reactors, not seven, but two, which had a life extension fairly suddenly, and they needed to go to market for approximately six million pounds equivalent of uranium. That created a lot of excitement. It told the market that there is no excess inventory they were able to get their fuel, but not without bumping prices significantly. So it's, given we're talking about seven reactors here that are at risk from the current, current government policy, uh, it's got the potential to create a lot of interest. And some of those reactors, their close down dates are very proximate. We're only talking a couple of years away. So I'm really hoping both from an industry point of view, but also just from a planetary point of view and a conservation point of view, that good sense prevails either at the ballot box or in the policy making decisions of the incumbent government. And we do see this fleet extended in Spain. Right. OK. And, and, I, and I encourage people to um, click the link and re read the article in Reuters um, about this one, because there's a kind of very healthy debate from both, both sides of the aisle um, as to the pros and cons of their own, well, pros of their own um, preferred option here, obviously Spain, lots of sun, but also kind of under, under the current socialist government, you know, um, trying to get the inter. We're going to call it. I should. Should we use intermittent renewables? Renewables, um, uh, you know, to, to actually kind of pick pick up the load. But you know, nuclear is, as you say, five five reactors, twenty percent of 
of um, the the energy is created from nu nuclear. So therefore, that's a lot of solar panels that's, or, or, or wind turbines, uh, and they, they're going to cost some money. And I th I'm not quite sure I, I understand the um, recycling element of, of uh, both of those at the moment uh, enough to really kind of comment. But interesting times in Spain. Well, there we go. Um, Michelle, Fizzer, we don't know. We'll soon see. Um, Brandon, um, there we go. Anything, anything else you want to talk about? Anything else that come, springs to mind? I think it was a good, good romp. Yeah, good romp around the world. I mean, we didn't even touch any of the major markets um, outside nope. of Europe, did we? So we'll have to leave that for another show. We'll catch up on what's happening in with the dramatic nuclear growth in China, the significant policy backflip in South Korea. I see they're starting to build new reactors now there. Uh, what's happening in the UAE and other parts of the Middle East, not to mention the huge volume of positive news with small modular reactors coming out of the US. But if we covered all of that in one show, we'd still be here when the sun goes down and uh, everyone's battery would run flat on their phone watching us. So we're going to have to leave that to another time, Matt. In, 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 indeed. In fact, that reminds me, I saw Elton John at the weekend, and that was, I think, his... Uh, one of his farewell songs. Um, we sh <laughs> the sun went down on him. Right, we shall see you next week. Thanks very much, Brandon. Thanks, Matt.